chapter 13, verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. This is speaking to Saul, Saul's actions, his life without guardrails caused him to go astray of the will and purpose of God. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. A message is given to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, that God is looking for a man after his own heart. And in Acts chapter 13, the message is preached. And in that message, it is said to be David. That is a man after God's own heart and that fulfills God's will. Lord, we thank you and praise you tonight. We worship you. We ask that you would bless this time together in your word. We pray that you would encourage and strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word. Do people really judge a book by its cover? All of us, when we're looking at things, we look at items that we might think would be interesting, and sometimes we make a judgment based on our first impression. And so that is a saying, and I would say probably that people do judge a book by its cover. Some people say it's what's on the inside that counts, and I believe that is absolutely true. But does God care about how we look on the outside and the habits that we have? I believe he is absolutely interested in not only on what is on the inside, amen, but he also cares about what is on the outside. We can find a passage of scripture in which Jesus specifically speaks about this when he is talking to the Pharisees who were very good at focusing on the outside. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 24. You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside may be clean also. So in this passage of scripture, Jesus reveals it's important what is on the inside and it's important what is on the outside. We're here tonight because we are people pursuing holiness, and we want to make sure that our hearts are right and our hands are right. Somebody said amen. Praise God. We opened up this lesson by talking about David, and the life of David is marked as a man with a right heart. He had a right heart. He had a right heart, but he was not perfect. His habits needed perfecting. And we know much about his life. David, when he is up on his porch during a time of war, he looks out and he sees a woman who is bathing by the name of Bathsheba. And in that moment, he has a choice that he has to make. Is he going to linger on this or is he going to turn away? We know the story. He makes the choice of lingering on that. His habits needed perfecting. He brought her to the palace. He sends his servants to bring her to the palace. And really, the things that transpire after that are not something that she has control over. You have to recognize and know that in ancient times, David was a king with absolute power. And so she really had no say in the matter. He commits adultery, although we could probably say it would be fair to say not only does he commit adultery, but it was assault and adultery. That relationship leads to a pregnancy. David begins in that moment a pattern of manipulation, of trying to cover up his wrong. 
and he enters into the process of murdering and killing Uriah. He positions Uriah on the front lines. He brings him home, first of all, and tries to get him drunk so that he can try to cover up whose child it is. Uriah is so uh, serious about the battle and the fact that he has left his men on the battlefield that he sleeps outside of the house. He refuses to go into the house. So David sends him out onto the battlefield again and tells his men, withdraw in the moment and the heat of the battle on the front lines, withdraw, and Uriah is killed. David might as well have killed Uriah himself. He commits the act of manipulation and murder. Nathan the prophet comes to him and exposes David's actions. The Bible tells us that David repents, gives to us a beautiful chapter in Psalm 53 of an attitude of repentance. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Blot me not, blot my transgressions. And there's so much that can be said in Acts chapter 50 or in Psalm 53. But the consequences of David's sin was very, very painful, very painful. The ripple effect of his actions rippled out through his children and generations beyond David himself. And sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Amen. Praise God. It's not the best to learn the hard way. But sometimes we have to learn the hard way. And David learned the hard way. He learned the hard way that guardrails are important. Guardrails are important. Think about the Kern River. If you've ever driven up through the Kern River, I almost killed a minister that was visiting here from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He came for a few services. His name was Tony Spell. And I asked him one night, you want to go riding? He said, sure. And so the next day, I took him to ride motorcycles. He didn't tell me at the time that he thought I was talking about bicycles. He had never been on a motorcycle before. So I put him on a motorcycle, which should not have done. That was uh, my error. And uh, he said, if I've driven an RV, surely I can ride a motorcycle. Well, there's a big difference between an RV and a motorcycle. But he got on the motorcycle. He got all the instrumentation on the motorcycle wrong. He drove out of the driveway and tried to turn. It didn't turn. He went into the neighbor's driveway. Should have stopped at that moment and said, that's enough. Let's do something else. We'll go for a walk or something. Uh, but we kept working at it. And he got to where he could drive up and down the street. Should have stopped there. That's pretty good. You've driven an RV. Now you've driven a motorcycle up and down the street. That's great. Should have stopped there. That was my error again. Decided to take him for a ride up to Brother Hodge's church in Lake Isabella. As you know, there's a canyon in between Bakersfield and Lake Isabella. And so up the canyon we went. Now, when you're going up the canyon, first of all, there's a sign that says, stay out, stay alive. 258 lives have been lost or something like that. Uh, and, but as you go up the canyon, next to the mountainside is not quite as scary or fearful as when you're coming down. When he was coming down the canyon, coming down the canyon, in some places there are guardrails. And that gives you at least some measure of security. But there's a lot of places where there are no guardrails. Tony Spell was riding this motorcycle. His knees were pinched to the side. He was riding as close as he could to the yellow line. So much, I was afraid somebody was going to hit him coming the other way. He was going so slow that the motorcycle, which is an air-cooled engine, was overheating. He was trying to stay away from the canyon on the other side. Because when you looked over there, it looks really, really dangerous. Very, very dangerous. 
And so here he comes down the canyon. There was a line of cars about 30 to 40 behind him. He was going so slow. He was going so slow, I was afraid he was going to fall over. That's how slow he was going. He was scared to death. When we got to the bottom of the canyon, he pulled off. I saw him pulling. I left him. There were 30 cars. I was getting somewhat embarrassed. So I went around him, went to the bottom of the canyon, and prayed at the bottom of the canyon that somehow he would make it out of the canyon. And when he came out of the canyon, there he comes, 40 cars behind him now, and he comes to the side of the road into the gravel, and I saw him reach for the right brake. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's not a good thing. And when he touched the right brake, it threw him off that motorcycle, sent him flying. The bike hit the ground. He got up and said, what happened? What happened? I said, well, you grabbed the right brake. I, ladies and gentlemen, I am serious about what I'm telling you. I had nightmares that night. I got up the next day, and he told me the next morning I had nightmares. We both had nightmares. That was the dumbest the most stupid thing in the entire world for anybody to do. Amen. And so I'm giving a public confession here tonight. <laughs> there are guardrails. And in some cases on that road, there are no guardrails. And when you look over, it is, it's, it's dangerous. Just recently, I think this last year, there was a man from McFarland, some city official. They didn't know where he'd gone. He disappeared. They found him and his car submerged in the Kern Canyon in one of those pools. It is very, very dangerous. So in some cases, there are, there's protections. There's guardrails there. And David in his life found out the hard way that you need some guardrails in your life. Amen. So I want to talk to you tonight for a few moments about guardrails. One of the guardrails that we need to have in our life is what we watch. What we watch. What we watch has the power to affect what we tolerate and even accept as normal. What you feed yourself on a constant basis. If you feed yourself that diet on a constant basis, it will have an effect on what you accept as normal. Followers of Jesus who are pursuing holiness and righteousness should follow holiness and righteousness in their media choices and everything that we take in visually. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth Forever, the lust of the eyes, what I take in my eyes, what I watch, if I'm watching it to the point of uh, a, a detrimental state, is going to have an effect and influence what I think. We talked about David here in the beginning, and he gave to us a gem regarding this principle of what you see. It's found in Psalm 101, verse number 3. David, this is David, we've recognized he was a man after God's own heart, but he learned the hard way that guardrails are important. And yet through that process, he gave to us this gem of a passage, 101 verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside, it shall not cleave to me. Amen. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I'm going to be intentional about that. And today, in the culture that we live in, every single one of us have to be intentional about what we allow ourselves to see. We have a choice in what we watch or what we see. The word that is spoken in that verse, uh, wicked, the word wicked, can also be translated as worthless. Worthless. I will set no worthless thing in front of mine eyes because I recognize that which is worthless can cause me spiritual problems. Amen. So I'm going to make sure I'm going to be intentional that I'm not putting something worthless in front of my eyes. Our world operates on an entirely different value system. As a matter of fact, on a lot of news sites, I'm sure some of you have noticed You'll be looking at some news sites, and there will be uh, news-worthy, uh, quote-unquote, news-worthy stories that you wonder, is this even important? 
and it's called, in the industry, it's called clickbait. It's a story that has to do with people gravitating towards something and they click on it because it's clickbait. Whatever the person is viewing might have an attachment, might have a value, might have a quote-unquote uh, an attraction to the eye. And so people click on that. And ultimately, that really has nothing to do with what the news are. It might be some Hollywood story, this happening or that happening. And it's something that will drive traffic to their website. And so they'll put stuff like that in front of you. This principle in Psalm 101 verse 3 comes from David. David learned you have to have guardrails in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 says, Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate. Everyone say separate. Saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Sometimes we read that passage of scripture and we don't think about what saith the Lord is referring to. That is a quote from Isaiah. And Paul is plucking the quote from Isaiah out and using it to the Corinthians. The quote in Isaiah was, for those who had been carried off into Babylonian captivity, they were pilgrims and foreigners in Babylonian captivity. And the writer was talking about, the prophet was saying, come out of Babylon and come back to Jerusalem. Separate yourself from your captivity. You've been held a captive. Come out from that captivity. Come back into Jerusalem and touch not the unclean thing. The unclean thing that he is referring to is all of those Babylon culture, idolatry, worship, everything else that was foreign to a Hebrew. Come out of that captivity. Come out of Babylon. Make your way back into Jerusalem. Remove yourself from idolatry. And Paul is using this in 1 Corinthians to the church that is at Corinth to make the same correlation. The church is at Corinth, is in the world, but you're not of the world. Come out of a world of idolatry. Walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. Don't let your life be influenced by the clutter of everything else that is around you. Live uprightly. Live godly. Live righteously. Don't touch the unclean thing. The unclean things that would draw you away from God. Remove yourself from them. Why? Because you are pursuing righteousness. And that is important. So it matters what we look at every single day. Our daily visual content could come from any number of sources. You may not become violent from watching violence, but you will begin to tolerate what you watch and accept it as normal the more that you watch it. The more violence and immorality we see, the more we will wonder if it even matters to God. We become desensitized. Amen. Desensitized. A good example I can give you of this, an illustration, is we are besieged on this piece of property by a homeless situation. And I really, really feel for, you've got three categories of people that are on the streets. You've got people that are really, really homeless, and, and, and they need support. You've got people that they don't want any support. They, they want to do drugs. They want to be independent. They don't want any kind of, of, of uh, framework any kind of direction, they're, they're free spirits, and so there's not much that you, you can't coerce them, you can't uh, try to draw them into programs because they're not going to adapt to them because that's not what they want. And then you have a third category that is there's a mental problem also, and, and people have difficulties mentally. So you've got three categories of people that are on the streets, and it's a, it's a sad, sad state of affairs. And, and sometimes we can become desensitized to that whole environment. I know I'm somewhat desensitized. Every once in a while, somebody will be appalled by something that has happened, and I'm not as appalled. I'm not as appalled because every single day there's a circumstance just 
Yesterday, I pulled into the parking lot. There's a guy standing in the driveway. His pants are down around his ankles. He's got his boxers on, and he's pinching his belly button. And then he moons the church over here, and he's talking out of his mind. And then somebody across the street runs over and chases him down that way toward the trailer park. It's just another day. And so every once in a while, somebody is scandalized by there's somebody doing something or, and, and, and we've become so accustomed. I'm not as desensitized as Brother Brett Grogan. He lives on the property. There's people falling into the canal, climbing over the fence, almost breaking their legs. There's, there's all kinds of situations. And while I'm on this, I need, to, I need to do a little housekeeping. If somebody knocks on this door out here, it's locked. If somebody knocks on the door, what you need to do is go to the person that is sitting right there. Brother Chris, raise your hand. All right. He's in front of him. He has a monitor and he can see cameras on the property. All right. And it's his responsibility to make sure that we're somewhat secure. All right. Let him go over there and figure out what's going on before you just open the door. Because if you open the door, you never know what's going to walk in here. The other night, somebody walked right in here with a blanket, sat on a pew, covered themselves all up, and sat through service until service was over, and then out they went. Uh, there's always situations and circumstances that are not the best, okay? And we're doing the best that we can. Thank God that there are gates on the property, and we open the gates for service time. We try to do stuff. Brother Jenkins is such a gem. He comes down here every morning, and he's out front for people bringing their kids to daycare and to school, and he's having an impact in the community. It helps when parents are driving their kids up to know that there's somebody that's out there every single day. We need to give him a hand clap of appreciation. That means something. That's valuable. So we're doing everything that we can, and our property is safe because we have put together measures to try to accommodate everything that we do and yet at the same time be secure. There are some areas of our city that you could go that's um, a whole lot worse than where we are here. We need to pray that God keeps his hand of protection upon us, but it is always taking place. There's always, and you can become desensitized to that. Oh, this is just another deal. <laughs> it's another deal. One day I was up in the apartment cleaning up there doing something and, uh, all of a sudden, I felt the presence. I turned around and looked. There's a gal standing there. I said, can I help you? She kind of scared me at first because she, wasn't, she didn't look like a church person, so I didn't know how she got up there. And she said, I'm looking for my brother. And I said, well, ma'am, I don't think your brother is here. Uh, I could tell that she was a little agitated. She was kind of out of it. And so I walked her down, and I walked her out the front door, and I closed the door, and I went about my business. I got in my car a little later, and I left the parking lot. My father-in-law was here somewhere on the property, and he had parked his Jeep out front. And as I'm pulling out, just as I'm pulling out, I happened to look over. She's sitting in his Jeep. <laughs> She's got her hands on the steering wheel. I called him and I said, you better go get, there's a lady in your Jeep. You might want to get her out before she takes off in it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know. She was up in the apartment. Now she's in your Jeep. Uh, so you, after a while, see, I mean, this is a great illustration, right? After a while, you become, desi you become desensitized to, to some things. We have night watchmen on the property. And every once in a while, they'll make a round with a big spotlight. And, and they'll just make sure that people know, hey, we're here. And just so that you know, we're here. It, it doesn't really help, but at least we're trying. <laughs> they'll cut through the fence. They've cut through the fence over and over. They've cut through the razor wire. It's just a constant deal. And the person made a big round with the light, went all the way around the property, came out, walked over here by the gym, was just checking things. And a lady scared him half to death. She had her head through the bars of the gates, and she was yelling, Why are you following me with that light? He said, Well, ma'am, I, I didn't know I was following you. I was just making the rounds. But apparently she thought he was following. So the illustration is this. You can be desensitized. That's not a good thing. It's really not, because there may be somebody that really needs some help, but you'll, you'll go by them because you don't know what their status is. And so you become desensitized to something. What you see at a constant basis, 
you will desensitize yourself to a situation. Be careful lest what you watch changes what you believe. Amen. Be careful lest what you watch changes what you believe. If it starts messing with your brain and your mentality, you need to put it aside, walk away from it, get away from it, because that is the world having an effect on what you see, and it's altering what you believe. It's influencing you. Thank God every single time the church doors are open for service, I am here because I want the Word of God to influence what I believe. I want to be sensitive to the Scripture and not everything else around me. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, notice something. I purposely have not tried to name the technology. I haven't tried to name the technology. I need to discuss right here the stand of previous generations on TV. Way back in the day, there was a stand that was made in the apostolic movement. The television was a negative, even when television at, the, at that point in time was not necessarily bad programming. It's just that some had some foresight to believe that this has a ten this has a tendency to to go the wrong direction. And so for the sake of an apostolic movement, we're going to take a stand. We're going to have a conviction. Now, other people may take other stands, and that's fine if that's what they want to do. But the apostolic church as a whole, we're going to take a stand that that's not a good direction to go. And I will say that at that point in time, that was the right thing to do. Absolutely was the right thing to do. Because they were proven right because it did. It did end up. See, when you watch something, in order to draw your attention to it and captivate you, you've got to do things that maybe are a little outside of what is normal. And then once a person sees that, and it's kind of like drugs. In order for you to get the same... Uh, lift off of whatever it is, you have to do something that's a little more extravagant. And now pretty soon, you're doing things that are so extravagant, and that's the only thing that can satisfy the appetite that you have created in the viewer. And so that has a tendency to go off the rails to where now your programming is full of all kinds of stuff that is negative to your spirituality. And so they made that stand. A long, long time ago. <clears throat> and yet, this is just a tad loud. So just drop me down just a bit. So what happened is they made a stand there. And that was the right stand. However, I'm standing before you here today to say that we should not eliminate their stand. And yet, we must move on from it. You can't eliminate. You can't denigrate, you can't downgrade a particular stand that was right for its time, and you still have to champion the ideals and values and principles for why they made that stand, but yet at the same time, it was very, very connected to a technology. And so now that we are in a place in which the technology has so rapidly changed, we can't eliminate the principles and values of the stand, but we have to move off of that and from that so that we condition our minds and we set up guardrails when everything that the technology was is wrapped up in this phone. It's wrapped up in social media, Facebook, YouTube, and you could go on and on. Online, gaming, there's all kinds of stuff. You understand what I'm saying? The technology, the world has circumvented the stand on the particular technology, and now there's so much technology... We, we look really foolish if we say, well, we're against TV, and yet we're doing all of this other technology over here without, a, without adapting and understanding. I'm not going to eliminate the values and the principles for the stand that was taken, but i got to think differently in the world that I'm living right now because I'm going to be viewed as a hypocrite if I don't acknowledge technology has done an end around, and there's all kinds of technology. Does that make sense? 
Now, that's really, really difficult. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a tightrope walk because some people will say, well, are you, are you saying that it wasn't a good, good thing to stand against television? Now, what are you saying? I'm not saying that at all. I just said it. We don't need to eliminate the values and principles for the stand, but we've got to adapt our thinking now to think. We're in a different world, an entirely different world. And so when a person says, I'm a, I, I don't have a television, I don't have a television. I've never had a television in my home. I was raised without one. And I'm not dumb, stupid, and I, you know, I, I, I haven't, it wasn't something that, you know, I couldn't relate and didn't know. And a lot of people when you talk to, they, they, they will agree with you that it's a good thing. Because, I mean, one guy told me, what, you don't even have a television? I said, well, I, I just, I was raised with one. I said, well, what do you do with it? He said, you know, now that you say that, I think I just have it on for background noise because I don't spend a lot of time watching it either. <laughs> All right. But now we're we're in a we're in a different world with everything else. We've got to establish some guardrails. That are not associated with specific technology. That are connected with principles and values. And this is where things are different. That world, my grandfather's world, he would not go into an Applebee's. Why? Because an Applebee's has a bar right in the middle of it. I'm not going in a place that has a bar. I don't go into bars. Okay? That was, it was very, to him, it was very demarcated. All right? Well, the world that we live in today, just about every restaurant has some, some form of something in it that in his generation would be a problem. The technology of a TV for that time was the right stand, and it was based on the technology. You, you, could, you could rule out everything by just ruling out the technology. Well, now you've got all kinds of technology, and it's integrated into every area of life, from shopping to buying airline tickets to, to all kinds of stuff. And, and, and we, we need to be honest, okay? We need to be honest and transparent. We used to say TV's terrible because you spend three to five hours. I don't know what the average amount of time is for somebody that's watching television, quote, unquote. But now we're doing the same thing on the phone, well, it got real quiet. What happened there? The bottom just dropped out or somebody say amen. It's very, very true. You, you got stuff on your phone that tells you what's your screen time this week. Right? So we got to be honest with ourselves. And we've got to adapt into the world that we're in. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. God, give us wisdom. God, give us wisdom. Amen. God, give us wisdom. Parents, we need wisdom. You don't want to put something. You don't want to put something in. We used to say the television, it was the babysitter. I saw where Duterte in the Philippines, he's doing a lockdown. He's locking everything down. And he made the statement publicly that you could just put four to 11-year-olds in a room and let them watch television. They'll sit there for hours because the television can transfix them. That's not good. That's not good. But I'll tell you what's not good either is totally focusing our children on a screen, whether it's an iPad or a phone or something like that, so that they're transfixed the entire time by a screen. That, I wish I had a little more of a response there. Maybe that's hitting and it's convicting. You, it's more work to try to be creative, to add things into children's life. Thank God Bethel Apostolic Academy is having school. I saw them out in the field playing ball and moving around. It's not good to sit them in front of a television. It's not good for them to sit in front of technology too much. That's not good. Well, it's a good learning tool. That's all this. Okay, that's good. But we don't want to create an appetite that they're just constantly sitting in front of a screen. This is not good. Amen. It's not the technology as much as the narrative and messaging. I'm not even sure what we mean when we say Hollywood anymore. We usually when you would say we're against Hollywood, you're talking about immorality, movies, and things like this. But with our world such as it is, 
It's a narrative, and it's the messaging that could come from Hollywood, movies, could come from news sites and sources. You don't know what to believe. You don't know what the narrative that they're pushing. What message are they trying to send? What in the world is going on? So I think what we mean now when we say Hollywood, if it's a narrative or it's a message that is not in line with the values and principles of the Word of God, then that means I need to avoid it. I don't need to let it influence me and affect me. I want to make sure my walk with God is pure. And how do I do that? I do that by staying in the Word of God. I do that by worshiping Him, magnifying Him, and making sure that I'm intentional about my spirituality. Praise God. It matters what we see, but not only what we see. It matters what we hear. Amen. What we listen to can affect how we think and feel. As followers of Jesus who want our thoughts and emotions anchored in him and his word, we should monitor what we hear. It's fascinating that Saul, when his life is going completely in disarray, is becoming paranoid. And his servants recognize it and know it. Saul is going off the rails. He's got a, he's moody. He's got, he's got a spirit that troubles him. And so what they did is they called for David. David was a shepherd, but he was also a skilled musician. And in the midst of Saul's consternation and difficulties, the servants knew what could right his wrong. They brought David in to play music. David started playing the harp, and it soothed Saul's spirit. The evil spirit that was upon him was removed. Saul was refreshed and was well. And that which was troubling him departed from him. So what they knew is this. They knew that music had the power to affect the mind. And David would come in and he would play his harp. Amen. Researchers have found that our brains release dopamine. That is a pleasure chemical. You can get dopamine when you exercise. There's a dopamine rush that comes, and it feels good. Your body responds to that. Music releases a dopamine. But if it crosses swords with the word of God, I need to make sure what I'm seeing is important and what I am hearing is important. I can't let the pleasure of the song I can't let that sacrifice the purity of the lyrics. Oh, yeah, but I really like this. Yes, but you can't sacrifice the purity of the lyrics. And so some things that we should think about, not only what we see, not only what influences us, not only what affects us through our eyes, but also what affects us through our ears. We should, we should ask ourselves some questions. What's the message to the song? What's the mood of the song? What's the language in the song? Amen. What are the graphic intuitions? What are the graphical displays that are being uh, projected through the music? Is this a neutral song? Is it something neutral that is not going to cut? It's not, it's not necessarily relating anything toward spirituality, but it's not necessarily relating anything that is bad or harmful either. You want an example of that? I'll never swim Kern River again. It was there that I lost her. It was there that I lost my best friend. The story about the Kern River, his best friend drowned in the Kern River. That's neutral, right? Praise God. I'm just trying to keep you all awake here. Come on, help me. Is it drawing me to God or is it pushing me away from God? Is it pushing? Man, I've heard people pull up to me and I don't want to look over, but I'm hearing, you know, cars moving, everything is moving. I'm hearing stuff. I'm hearing so many F-bombs and this that you kind of want to just kind of look over to see who's over there. And you look over and you see in the back seat the kids. Oh, this is not good. This is not good at all. Is it drawing me closer to God or is it pushing me away from God? What we hear is important. What we listen to, what we see is important. What we hear, these are guardrails that we have to put in our life. And they have to be intentional. They have to be intentional. What about conversations? 
What about conversations? What about gossip, what I hear? If, if you're all always around people that are tearing down and belittling others, those are not good conversations. I, I don't need to hear that. That's not good. That's not good for my spirituality. The word of today is schadenfreude. That's my word for the day. I read it, and I thought, that's a cool word. I'm going to make sure that I don't forget that. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. That's a German word, schadenfreude. And it means taking joy in someone's failure, schadenfreude. I, I shouldn't want to take joy in someone's failure. Sometimes in conversations, you feel like the person has developed a sense of schadenfreude. They take joy in someone's failures. What types of speech and conversations will you have with people or not? It matters what we hear. It matters what we see. Everyone say it matters what we see. And it matters what we hear. Amen. We have to have a heart that is right, an inward heart that is holy, but we also have to have holy hands, which are our habits and our behaviors. Anybody here tonight want the righteousness of God to be applied to your life? Amen. I know my righteousness is as filthy rags. I know it. I know it. Amen. I know it. I know that I'm in need of God. David was a man after God's own heart, but he needed perfecting in his habits. And this is something that we should all strive to do and be. It matters not only what we see and what we hear, but it matters what we wear. It matters. Modesty matters. Since our purpose is to point others to Jesus Christ, we should consider our appearance as a part of our commitment to holiness. The New Testament is consistent in calling for modest apparel. So the maturing believer should seek to adorn himself or herself accordingly. Amen. A great passage of scripture that helps us with this understanding is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 3. Whose adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. So there is a, a setup here. The idea of clothing dates back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were unclothed and they were unashamed. And when they sinned, they tried to formulate their own attire. They tried to become their own tailor. Genesis chapter 3 tells us this story. Their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. Not only did they realize there was a nakedness in body, but there was a nakedness in their understanding and mentality. And so they sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves aprons. Then they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice. I was afraid because I was naked. All right, he wasn't completely naked because they had made some aprons for themselves. And yet he hid himself. And he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree where I've commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? They were not completely unclothed. They had on what they had put together, but still felt naked. And so what happens in that narrative or story is God was asking for more than the minimum. God made tunics out of the skins of animals. And that also set the precedent of sin requiring a sacrifice of blood from the very beginning. When mankind sins, there are consequences associated with that. And the only way to absolve the sin was by the death of an animal and by the blood of that animal. So from the very beginning, clothing mattered. Then you have in the Old Testament, you have the religious system. And then ultimately it reaches a culmination because there is one supreme sacrifice. And Jesus Christ died for us by his blood. Are we saved? So attire goes all the way back, and it matters even in the beginning. Holy people should dress modestly. What does that mean? 
That means to cover the body in a way so as not to draw undue attention to ourselves or tempt anybody by the way we dress. Modesty. It means to be in balance. Modesty means to be in the middle of. It has balance. It has consistency. Some people have asked and wondered, why do you make a guardrail? Why do you put a guardrail around where sleeves and, and skirt lengths are? Well, if you in today's age, okay, somebody may not agree with you, but it has to make some sense. You can't just, that's just the way that it is. It has to make some sense. So I would hope in our conversations and in our presenting our particular stand or conviction that we would be able to make common sense to somebody even if they rejected our position. The reason why you have a standard or a guardrail in terms of dress or in, in modesty, it's, it's based around the middle of or the consistency of something. And the best opportunity to see where that is is at the elbows and at the knees. So therefore, we practice being modest with those points in mind, because it's modesty, it's the middle of, there's a balance in what we are doing. This is what modesty means, and the Bible is consistent about we, as the people of God, should dress in a way that is modest. The world is going to objectify the body, but modesty places value back on who a person is more than just what they look like. Amen. We're far removed from that ancient lesson goes all the way back to the beginning of Adam and Eve, but God still values modesty. Amen. Men are more visual oriented and they fight a daily battle against sensuality. Billboards, commercials of all types, online ad posters, and from the way people dress all around them every single day. Men have to be intentional to keep their integrity in a sensual world. But I'm telling you, it is a battle worth winning. Because if you look at everything that the world throws at you, you'll look at everybody and objectify them. And you won't see who God really intended for them to be. Amen. God values modesty, and he values men every single day that are intentional about saying, I'm going to be pure and holy and right today no matter what the world throws at me. Praise God! Brother Henzo, thank you. I needed that, bro. Modesty also values value. This passage that we read here said, not the adorning of plating of hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. Modesty values value. If you can afford it, God bless you. But if you can't afford to give to God's kingdom, take care of your family, and buy it, you cannot afford it. It's not modest. Because it's outside of your means. You're, compar you're comparing yourself with someone else, trying to measure up to who they are, putting yourself in debt for what? Trying to win the influence of people that don't care about you anyway. And so modesty from a Christian perspective is, I, I'm not going to get caught up in that rat race because God doesn't, God doesn't care what shoes I'm wearing or, or what brand tie I'm wearing. God cares about me for who I am and what I can be. And his spirit is in me. Praise God. Labels and status based on articles of clothing and name brands, they don't create value in God's eye. Okay? But... But there's a need for an explanation here on buying clothes and attitudes that are associated. All right? If you're wearing a name brand just so that you can be an elitist, that's a problem because your motivation is wrong. But now if you go out and say, I'm going to go on, I don't know, eBay, OfferUp, and you shop for name brand stuff, you can get slightly used stuff that's very, very good stuff at a fraction of the cost. More power to you because you're making use of your purchasing dollar. 
you don't have to shop just at Target or Walmart. Some folks, oh, you can shop anywhere. Why don't you shop at Target and Walmart? They're not wearing Target and Walmart. But Target and Walmart does have some pretty cool stuff sometimes. Maybe not all the time, but sometimes they do. You can shop at the Goodwill, and you can find really good stuff at the Goodwill. Don't look down on somebody that likes to shop at the Goodwill. You may not even know the suit that they're in came from the Goodwill. And don't get some humble pie attitude when somebody says, man, that's a good-looking suit. Yeah, I got it at the Goodwill. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? Just say thank you. Looks nice. Looks sharp. Doesn't matter if you got it at the Goodwill, men's warehouse, or some tailor made it for you out of scratch. Right? Amen. So our motivations are what are, what's important. Why am I doing what I'm doing? If, I, if I'm shopping for stuff and, and I'm getting stuff from everywhere and I like to shop and, and, and what have you, and I do it with the proper motivation, I'm not, and I'm not looking down on everybody. Ooh, you got name brand shoes. Ooh, wow, wow. You're, you're, what, what, what are we doing? We're comparing ourselves. We're not trying to make everybody wear the same clothing. Everybody has to shop at Target. No. God gives you the ability and creativity, and some of you are at different levels in terms of your finances. Some of you can afford some things. Some of you can't afford some things. That's your prerogative to do what you're going to do with it. But do it in modesty based on where you are and don't overspend to influence somebody. And if you've got a lot of money, don't spend the money so you can look down on somebody. We start getting into this kind of thing back and forth, and it's nothing but a mess. That's the way the world operates. That's not the way we operate. Praise God. The Holy Ghost is in us. I'm content with godliness where I am, and I'm going to make the most of who I am and with what I have. Praise God. Praise God. So modesty values value. And then... It also values presentation, how we're attired. Michael Hyatt, a former CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. That's a, Thomas Nelson Publishers publishes a lot of Bibles. And he developed some guidelines of modesty that he taught his daughters. I thought these were really good. Number one, if you have trouble getting in or out of it, it's probably not modest. That's pretty common sense. Number two, if you have to be careful when you sit down or bend over, it's probably not modest. Have you ever seen people do that? That is hilarious. <laughs> Number three, if people look at any part of your body before looking at your face, it's probably not modest. Number four, if you could see your most private body parts or an outline of those parts under the fabric, this is probably not modest. These, these are just some guidelines that he kind of put forth to his daughter, and, and they're very commonsensical matters of modesty. They're good guidelines for men and women. What is our motivation in our clothing of ourselves? We should always reflect our God-given gender in our appearance because we are in the image of God. Amen. And that brings me to the last point here tonight. I know that I've gone 53 minutes, but i got to get all this out here tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Men and women are distinctively different. I want you to turn and look at who's next to you. And I mean, in some cases, it won't be the case, but you need to look at the woman next to you or the man next to you and say, you are different from me. <laughs> you are very, very different from me. Okay. This is not a bad thing. Okay, this is in the image of 
God. God created us with differences. And this is very, very important. In the world that we live in, we need to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 5. We should not stoop to the low of hurtful stereotypes, jokes, or mockery, but with compassion and sensitivity, extend the hope of Scripture. God handmade each and every one of us in his own image. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day which they were created. This distinction between male and female, this distinction should reflect in the way that we act, in the way that we speak, in the way that we carry ourselves, and in the way that we dress. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Our value is directly connected to being made in the image of God. It's not based on what we look like, how much our clothes cost, how much skin we expose to others, or how many people turn their heads when we walk by. It comes from how much God was willing to pay for us because he hand-created you. There is not another person like you. God created you to be you, and that's where the value is. You are in the image of God. And in his image, there is male and female. He handmade us, and he purchased us with his own blood. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Amen. It's interesting uh, to note about the image of God. I've got this in my notes right here. Let me see what does it say. Interesting note if folks look bored. <clears throat> the image of God and what that means. And could God have come in the flesh as a woman? Praise God. Is that the first time you heard that? Okay, good, okay, okay. <laughs> could God have come in the flesh as a woman? Well, sure he could have. Because we are in the image of God. And God created male and female. Now, the image of God, that discussion right there is an interesting discussion. Because some people think the image of God means perfection. So if you're born into the world, you're handicapped or something is wrong with you. You're still in the image of God. Yes? I don't care what the world says. Abort the baby because it's got a problem. No, they're still in the image of God. Right? We live in a fallen world. And so sometimes because of the fact that we live in a fallen world, not everything goes right. Chromosomes get crossed up and things happen and what have you. And all of that transpires. But you're still in the image of God. No matter what you look like or where you are. Right? You are in the image of God. Praise God. It's not that just, well, you, you look perfect and you have the right stature and the right looks and that makes you in the image of God. But the discussion with that is if we're in the image of God and we are male and female, absolutely God had, he could have come in the flesh as a woman. So the question is, why didn't he? Well, because you're in a patriarchal society. And in ancient Jerusalem and in the first century, do you think that his example in coming would have been a wise choice to come as a woman? Probably not. And so he came as a man. But the image of God is both male and female. Right? Amen. Praise God. That's just very fascinating to me. Now, in this passage of Scripture that we read, it appears that... There's a distinction that is made between men and women in 1 Timothy. Men may not look different 
than any other guy. So, for example, this says, um, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And then it goes in like manner also that women adorn. So there's nothing mentioned with the men in terms of their adornment, but with the women, it specifically goes to the adornment. So what is going on there? It seems to suggest that men may not look different than any other guy. And this is true. I think this is true around town. When you see a man, you wouldn't know if that's an apostolic man or not. But if you see an apostolic lady, you would know that that is an apostolic lady because of the way that they are adorned. So what, what the passage is saying is that men, though they may look different, they should be men that pray. They should be men that worship. They should be men that lift their hands. They should be men that shout with a voice of triumph. They should be men that dance before the Lord. They should be men that are controlled. They don't yell, abuse others. They don't abuse their family. They don't abuse their wives. They don't abuse their employers. They don't abuse other people around them. And this seems to be the approach of men. Holiness is more about an attitude than it is about apparel. That's what it seems to be saying. Now, this is the ideal that Paul is talking about. Men, their holiness is more connected to their attitude. Hey, men, let's have good attitudes. Let's be men that pray. Let's be men that raises their hands, not afraid to worship and lift up their voice. Any men hearing what I'm talking about? Let's be men that lead in worship. Amen. We don't take a back seat, but we lead. It's about attitude. Amen. It's about attitude. It's about attitude. Now, this is the ideal. Current pop culture reality is quickly trying to redefine the roles, function, and appearance of men. And so even though in this passage of Scripture the reality is on the attitude we're seeing in culture now, it still needs to be on the attitude and we need to make sure that we're adorned properly. The women... It seems more geared toward apparel. Amen. Laugh out loud, says my notes. Men don't have near the accessories. <laughs> that is hilarious. And nobody's laughing, but it's funny. You were laughing? Is it true or not? You got to have a purse. You got to have shoes. You got to have. I mean, a guy, same pair of shoes works for every suit, right? Not the women. I walk through my. Oh, there's a coat rack. I walk through my house. It knocks me over just about every time. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what in the world? You know what it is? It's a stack of purses. And it keeps impeding out in the way. And it attacks me every time I go by. Why is that? I've got some females in my house. They have, have a different purse because it's a different outfit. And the outfit has to match the shoes. Got to match the purse. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I need a break. Modesty and purchase, modesty and purchase. All right, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're going broke with all the accessories. <laughs> Do you have to save all the shoe boxes? <laughs> uh, praise God. Clothes should not detract from the focus of being a woman professing reverence for God. And hair is a reflection of that gender distinction. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11 teaches that men should have short hair and women should have long uncut hair. Why? Because it is a distinction between the sexes. Now more than ever, there needs to be an apostolic testimony of people that speak the truth in love. Not arrogance, not elitism but speak the truth in love that God's intention for us to, was to be men and women of faith. And that is represented in the way that we look and dress. Amen. Shamefacedness as the Holy Ghost illuminates the heart. I don't need to mask my face. I don't need to diminish the power of the Holy Ghost operating in my life, both men and women. You say, well, I thought you were speaking about makeup specifically to women. There's makeup for men nowadays. Right? So men and women are wearing makeup. We don't need to wear makeup because the Holy Ghost is the illumination in our heart and life. That I don't need to cover anything. I need to expose the Holy Ghost in my life. I don't need to shade it. I don't need to try to cover it. But I need to let it out. 
praise God. Come on. Have you filled with the Holy Ghost? Let it let, let the joy of the Lord out. Amen. Be like a be like a Moses. Be like a Stephen. In the Old Testament, Moses came down from the mountain. His face was illuminated. Everybody saw that the presence of God was with him, and they looked from afar in amazement because Moses had been with the Lord. The New Testament representation, Stephen, before the day of Pentecost, his face is illuminated when he's talking about the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. There's an Old Testament representation in Moses. Before the early church, there was a New Testament uh, representation of Stephen and then the church happens and the Holy Ghost falls and now there is a representation in the world of the shining and the illuminating of the power of the spirit and guess whose face it's on it's on your face it's on your face amen I don't need don't need to mask or cover. I need to expose the power of the Holy Ghost. I don't need to mask or cover my face, my hair, or any other parts of my body. Amen. But I want an undefiled anointing of God to flourish in my life. I don't need jewelry and ostentation to make an appearance. But God, I want your spirit to make an appearance before me. Did you ever stop and think about that? Before you meet somebody, have you ever stopped and, and thought about that? God, before I ever get into their realm of influence or sphere, let your spirit go before me. Let your grace and your goodness and your joy go before me so there's a recognition that something is unique about who you are. Praise God. A peace of God. A comfort of God. An anointing of God. Amen. We are separated for a reason. And our habits should reflect that calling. I want to have a pure heart and I want to have pure hands. And so there's some guardrails that I put in my life to protect that holiness and that righteousness. Amen. Savior, we thank you and praise you and worship you and know that you're a God that is gracious to us. We thank you for your anointing and your ability. I want my spirit and my heart to be right. And I also want some guardrails in my life and some boundaries in my life. I'm separated to your cause and your calling. And I want to be a people that has been separated and called out for your glory and your honor. We pray that you would give us right attitudes and right spirits and right hearts. Not that we present ourselves in a negative way to society and culture, even though sometimes we may be persecuted for it. But I pray that you would help us do it with love and intentionality and kindness. We ask these things in your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've gone for an hour and seven minutes. God bless you. Let's